Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Nicole, and today we will be um, reading the Bible from 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, but before we um, take time to read together, um, we'll spend some time praying. But if you can find um, 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bibles or your devices, um, that'll be helpful as um, once we finish praying, then we'll read together. So now um, we'll spend some time praying. Dear God, uh, thank you for the opportunity um, to meet together um, as a community. And Lord, um, so many people um, living life in exile don't have this opportunity. Um, Lord, we really pray that as we um, listen to James and as we are challenged in this series, um, as we think about what it means for us to live as exiles, um, that we might be challenged and we might uh, be spurred on to spread the word um, to those living among us. And Lord, really pray that as we delve into the word now, we'll have um, open eyes and hearts and ears to hear what you have to say. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not know even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you 
by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Excellent. Glad to hear it. So excited to be getting into this series, uh, looking at 1 Peter. I've had this plan for a while. Uh, I've just been soaking in this book myself. It's been uh, good for my soul, and I can't wait to work through it together as a church family. Uh, Saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 last night. Lots of fun. Had me thinking about Marvel stuff in general. I hope you guys appreciate the self-restraint that I show in not leading with a Marvel illustration every week. Like, that's where we'd go if this was a church for me. But it's not. But you do have to do it every now and again. So, Captain Marvel. Now, who's seen this one? Just so I've got an idea what we're working with here. Okay, you know, fair few. You know, these days batting 50-50 with Marvel movies. That's all right. So, Captain Marvel, okay. Uh, Carol Danvers is a human who accidentally absorbs, okay, what's called one of the Infinity Stones, all right, the Space Stone. She absorbs the power of this. But in the process, she loses her memory and she gets found by this alien race called the Kree. Now, some of you are, I did not know we were going to go this deep nerd so early in the morning, just, but just stay with me, okay? And here's what happens, right? These guys, after finding her and discovering the incredible power that she has, they're like, okay, she could be a great ally for us, but she's too powerful, all right? Because if she, and if she realizes how much power she has, this could go bad for us if she turns on us. So what they do is they take this thing called a photon inhibitor. That's right, we're going deep nerd dive, all right? It's this little blue thing just here. It's hard to find a picture, okay? It's called the photon inhibitor. And they tell her it's the source of her power, right? And so she's trained to fight and all this sort of stuff, but they're very careful to not let her sort of tap into her full potential. They want to keep her under control. And finally, she realizes that, that it's not the source of her power, but it's inhibiting her power, and she's able to tap into the cosmic potential inside of her. She breaks free, bam, Captain Marvel, full power, right? Now, I don't want to oversell it, but if you guys get a hold of the truth that we're looking at this morning, all right, it's a little bit like casting off the photon inhibitor and tapping into full power in your faith. And yes, I'm, making, I'm saying that lightly, and yet at the same time, I do want to expand your horizon on this. Because this is deep, powerful stuff. And it's so easy to read through verses like this and just hear Christian language and just think it's part of a nice introduction, but that's not what's going on here. This is fundamental, gospel, life-changing, life-transforming truth. That's what we're looking at today. That's where we're going. All right. Now, to get there, we want to understand the scripture well, because what makes it deep and profound is the source of truth that we have this coming from. And so we're going to work through this book a little bit. I want to introduce you to it. I want to let you know about who's writing it. I want to let you know what's happening in this book so that, again, you can understand where we're getting this truth from. So this is a book called 1 Peter. It's Peter's, the, the, the first letter that we have of Peter and he's writing to a particular people. Now, Peter, we've seen a fair bit of late in the Gospel of John as we've worked through that over the last year. Peter was a fisherman from Galilee. He was the first to identify Jesus as the Messiah. In a couple of, and we have that record in the Gospel in a couple of different locations. Right, he was a witness of the empty tomb himself. He was a, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He's kind of the unofficial leader of the disciples. It, it's not written that way, but certainly he's the most prominent voice amongst them and, and seems to be the leader in all sorts of ways. But we've also seen that he's impetuous and he's kind of the best and the worst of the disciples. 
He's got the highest heights, but also probably the lowest lows. All right? That's who he is as a guy. That's the guy that's writing this letter. And he's writing okay, with a particular structure in mind that's pretty typical of lots of letters that they wrote back then, of this sort of letter. So it breaks down where he does this opening greeting that we're going to look at. And then he's going to do a few things. He's going to talk about the identity of God's people. He wants them to understand who they are. He's going to talk about what it looks like to live righteously in a sinful world. Then he's going to think about suffering unjustly for Christ. And then finally, he's going to close off his remarks. That's, that's the, the big shape of the book, and we're going to look at some sermons, looking at some smaller themes within that. But this, this whole idea that we've got going for this series is living holy lives in the time of suffering. Peter is writing to a group of people that are experiencing difficulty and hardship, and he wants to set them up to be able to do that well. So this is his opening greeting. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means a sent one. right? He has been sent from Jesus Christ. And he's writing to what he calls God's elect. Okay, now this is a, a particular little phrase that gets seen in the New Testament a few times. The elect, okay, were God's chosen people. Okay? So since before the creation of the world, they were chosen to be his people for all of eternity. When we talk about the elect, we're talking about the people that God chose before he even made the world who would be his forever. So he says, to God's elect, to those I've chosen since before the founding of the world, right, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Now exile is, uh, for those of us who know the Bible, is sort of a a big word because it refers to God's people in the Old Testament when they were exiles from the promised land. They, they had been living in the nation of Israel, but because of the disobedience, they were cast out and they lived in exile in Babylon. But now here he's writing to these Christians who he's calling exiles. And there's a couple of different things that he might mean by this. There's certainly a spiritual idea to it that our home is in heaven and we live as exiles in this world now until we wait to go back to or to go to our heavenly home. But it's also possible that these guys that he was writing to were actually political exiles as well. That in their own time, these were very possibly people who had become Christian in Rome, and that, that's where Peter's writing this letter from, okay, which we'll see in just a second here. And he's writing to people who have been cast out of Rome, probably became Christian in Rome, and have now gone out to these Roman territories. So it's very possible that not only are they spiritual exiles in the sense of their heavenly home and them living in earth now, but also in the sense of they've been cast out from Rome and had to live in these foreign places as well. And they're scattered throughout these provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is on the map about here. All right, now, you guys are looking at that. You're like, uh, not sure what that means. Let's put a modern map here so you know the region we're talking about. So that's modern version of this map with the countries as we know them today and all that sort of stuff. So we're in this region of Turkey there. Okay, That's the area that we're looking at. Okay, We get the idea now? We sort of know roughly where we are in the world. Some of you are like, where is Europe? I'm still... That's okay. We'll get there. Basic geography. All right? But it's this region that they're writing to. Okay? And he's writing to these, these towns. Okay? So it's several different urban centers. All right? these, these are cities. All right? 
The Romans have done a really good job in joining them up by road. That's what the Romans did. They built roads. They were very good at building roads, all right? So they've connected these places together. It's a diverse population, okay, mixed with both people from the region itself, uh, Greek people that sort of had been there for, for a while, and also new Romans that had moved into the place. So they're, they're fairly cosmopolitan in the sense of mix of different peoples. Uh, but as it turns out, this will also be a real cradle of Christianity. Lots of heavy hitters theologically and in church history significantly will sort of come from this region over time. Okay, so Peter in Rome, writing to these guys in these urban centers, probably they would have received this letter and copied it and passed it around to each other, that sort of idea. They're probably political exiles, but also spiritual exiles. It's to them that he says, to God's elect, and writes all this stuff. And then he goes on and says, that you exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now that word chosen there is kind of the key word because each of these other three parts hang off of that. We could write it this way to make it a little bit clearer. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It all goes back to that chosen word there. So he wants them to know that they are chosen. He's called them the elect, and now he said about how they were chosen, and he's framed it in terms of all three people of the Trinity, right? You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. All right, so we're getting our theology in there nice and early. We're going to work through what each of these means here. So first up, the foreknowledge of God. When we talk about the foreknowledge of God, we're not talking about God somehow looking into the future and seeing what's going to happen and then telling people about it. It's not something that is happening apart from God that he's sort of looking into. When we talk about foreknowledge, we're talking about God's plan and purposes. The reason that he knows what's coming is because he's planned and predestined all things. So we see Peter use this language elsewhere to talk about God's plans with Jesus. He says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. As we've worked through John's gospel, we've seen how again and again one of the things that John wanted to really emphasize was that everything was happening to Jesus in accordance with God's plan. And Peter speaks of God's foreknowledge when it comes to what happened with Jesus, but now he also speaks about God's foreknowledge when it comes to those who have been chosen. You have been chosen in accordance with God's plan. It's no accident that you've been chosen. It's deliberate. It's purposeful. God has chosen you in his plans and purposes is the idea that we're working with here. And it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying sounds like a pretty religious word. What, what does that mean? It means being made holy. It's the process of being set apart more and more for service to God. So God has chosen them in accordance with his plans and purposes through the work of the Spirit who is making them more holy and setting them apart to serve God to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. God's plan and purpose is to choose you 
to sanctify you, to be obedient as you're sprinkled with Christ's blood. That's, that's the vision that he's giving to them. He's explaining to them the work that God has done in making them a part of his people. And to them he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. May you have lots and lots and lots of it. Right? Now that's a lot, right? To pack into two verses. That's, but he's just getting warmed up. All right? He says to them, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have the exclamation marks in Greek, but I think it's a good thing that they've put it there because this is meant to be an emphatic opening statement. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited about this. And he says, a bunch of things we're going to work through slowly, and then I'm going to sort of put it back all together so we can try and hold it together all at once because there's a lot here. He says, in his great mercy. Mercy is not receiving a punishment or a negative consequence that you deserve. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. Grace is when we get favor that we don't merit. Mercy is when we don't get the punishment or negative thing that we deserve. So in his great mercy, in his great not giving you what you deserve. He has given us, come from him, he's the one who initiated it. We didn't do it, he did. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. An idea that, again, we've heard from John's gospel not too long ago, right? Back in John chapter 3, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. We need to be born new. We see that Peter's theology, where does it come from? It comes from Jesus, right? So Peter is saying, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, not wishful thinking, not a fragile hope, not, not a kind of, oh man, maybe one day sort of a thing, but a living, breathing, real hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right? I should say that it, there's a lot here, and I'm going to sort of go back and put it all together, but the reason I'm sort of working it through here is because it's, it's all one big sentence, right? Peter's he's getting excited here, and he's, just, he's adding more and more things as he's going along. So, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth and into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance. Inheritance. A, a thing that has been promised to you. Something that someone has, has left to you, but you cannot claim it immediately. Something else has to happen first, right? With, with earthly inheritance, we have to wait for somebody to die, right? So you have that awkward tension. Sure, I love great auntie Beth, but man, that inheritance looks good. Um, not just me? No, okay. Um, no, it's something where we understand that, that something's being held for us, it's been promised to us, but it's not ours in full yet. In a very real way, we can say, I have an inheritance, and yet I don't have it fully yet. It's mine, but it's not. Kind of now and not yet sort of an idea, right? 
But the important thing about this inheritance is that it can never perish, spoil, or fade. Our great Auntie Beth might decide at some point that I'm out. I'm not her favorite great nephew anymore. All right? But this inheritance, it will never spoil, perish, or fade. It's ours. It's, it's guaranteed, is the idea here. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's with God himself. That's where this inheritance is. And it's held for you through faith. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, like I said, that's a lot. Okay? There's lots of different parts to it. All right? we, just, we just heard it read before. And let's just be really honest. It's easy in these long sentences where there's a whole bunch of ideas packed together where it, just, it can just sort of become words, right? That roll over our head. It, it's vaguely Christianese. It, it, it sounds positive. We'd, we'd say, yes, we like it. But we don't always stop and slow down and really dwell on it. And it's even more difficult sometimes to hold it all together, right? So we're going to try and visually help us to hold it together here to give us a sense of the power that's actually in this. So let's work it through with some visuals. All right, in his mercy, in God's mercy, is where believers are. All right, lots of spatial language here, right? In, in, through, to, all these sorts of ideas. Spatial language. In God's mercy, he has given to us, it's come from God, it hasn't come from us, he has given to us new birth. Right, we have a new spirit living inside of us. Our fleshly bodies remain, but we've been given a new birth. Our spirits have been reborn in his great mercy, and it's a gift given from him. Right? And it's also in a living hope. I live in God's mercy, if I believe in Jesus, in a living hope, with the new spirit that he has given to me in this new birth, and it's through the resurrection of Jesus. That's how it's come to me. Through my knowledge of what the Lord Jesus has done and who he is and how that's been revealed to me. And into an inheritance. I, I live in God's mercy. I live in this living hope according to the new birth that I've been given, but also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's rock solid as it's kept in heaven for me. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until whoops jumped ahead don't know how that went. until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed for the last time okay the, the reason that I want you guys to sort of see it all together right is because you realize that what Peter is doing here is adding layer upon layer to give these believers that he is writing to a real sense of where they are at with Jesus. Jesus, as Peter's going to talk about in a moment here, is unseen. 
He's not somebody that we see face to face. Sometimes, you know, when we ask, like, how are you going, you know, you might ask somebody, how, you know, how, how are you going with so-and-so? Maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's a work colleague, maybe it's a spouse, whatever the case may be. And there's a sense when, because we're face to face and we're interacting with them in a certain way, we, can, we have an idea about where we stand with them. But Jesus, who's not here with us face to face, sometimes we can be a little uncertain. Like, yeah, where where do I stand with Jesus? And what Peter is trying to explain to them right now is, this is where you stand with Jesus if you are believing in him. You're in his great mercy. You're in a living hope. You have a new spirit. You're shielded through faith. You've got an inheritance that's kept for you in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fail. And you'll be here until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? This is where you live. This is what he's trying to explain to them. Next week, we're going to see how Peter's focus is really on trying to explain to the disciples who they are. This week, what he's trying to explain to them is where you are at. All right? And he wants them to understand this for a very specific reason, because he says, in all this, In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. One thing I didn't tell to you before when we were talking about these people that Peter is writing to is what was happening to them at their time in history. We think this letter was written somewhere in the 60s, you know, and I don't mean the 1960s, I mean like the early 60s, all right, first century 60s, at a time when Christians were on the Roman Empire's radar. People argue about exactly when it was written, whether it was during a time of intense persecution and pressure, I'm kind of inclined to think that actually it's more as they've become a a, a thorn in the the side of the Roman Empire, so to speak, and they're they're aggravating them, they they do things differently, they don't worship the same gods, there's concern about whether they're going to follow the Roman rules and all this sort of stuff. There's this pressure that's starting to be put on Christians as to whether they're going to live the Roman way or not. And the result of this is that there is suffering that they are experiencing. And what Peter wants to do is equip these believers to face this suffering and persecution well. Now, like I said, historically, we're not sure if this was deliberate overt pressure or whether it was simply the fact that they are exiles living in a foreign land, both politically and spiritually, and they're facing challenges as part of that. But what Peter wants them to understand is, in all these things here, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In order to equip and prepare these believers to do the suffering well, he needs them to understand that in all this you greatly rejoice. You find joy, you take joy in all of this, though now for a little while you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's what he wants them to understand to start with here. 
Because he goes on and he says, These, by these he means these various trials, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, okay, when he says proven genuineness, it's you know, it, the faith that's been tested as authentic, right, the proven authenticity, it's, it's actually a, like a term from metalworking. It means literally like without an ally, it, it, it's pure. And he uses that word play into this next verse here. He says, these various trials have come, so the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, so a pure metal of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, so think about this. In all these things you rejoice, though for a little while you suffer, because these various trials have come so that they may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The suffering that you're enduring now is going to be to the praise of Jesus' glory when he comes back. That's the point. That, that's why these things are happening. It's real easy when we're in the midst of suffering or difficulty, right, to think, what is God doing to me? Why is this happening to me? And what Peter wants us to understand is, is that, yes, this is for you in the sense of your faith is going to be tested and proved genuine, but also this is going to be for God's glory. Peter wants them to understand that the question they should be asking in the midst of this is not what have we done to to deserve this suffering. In fact, he's going to go on through the letter to explain really clearly this suffering is unjust. It's not fair. But he's going to reframe things by talking about how actually this is exactly what Jesus has done for us, suffering unfairly. And so what we need to learn to do is not complain about suffering but rather to let it strengthen our faith and to see it as an opportunity to give God glory. That's where he's going to go with this. And again, he knows the situation that they're in, so he says, Though you have not seen the Lord Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. We heard again in John's Gospel not too long ago, blessed are those who believe without having seen. Peter is literally writing to those who believe in Jesus without seeing. And he says to them that you believe without seeing and you're filled with, inexpressible, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He's affirming that their faith is sincere and real, that these, glorious, that these trials are going to prove the authenticity of their faith. And he rejoices in the fact that they rejoice in their faith in Jesus. For they receiving, present particle is a fancy word that says that this is, you know, the language is being used here is meant to convey an ongoing reality. You are receiving continuously, would be a way to say it. You are receiving continuously the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That's the goal. The goal of your faith The end result, the completion of it, is the full salvation of your souls. That in all these things, this is where you sit until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what you are receiving, the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what he wants them to know. 
And to magnify it even more, just in his last couple of verses, he puts this in perspective to understand just how special it is that these guys have all of this now. Because what he wants them to understand is God's people haven't always had this. So he says, concerning this salvation that he's just been talking about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. They, they were desperate to figure this stuff out. They, they searched intently and within care to figure out God, what God was pointing them to when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. The prophets of old were desperate to know what you guys have now had revealed to you. Their comfort, the encouragement given to those prophets in their lack of knowledge was that what they were doing was prophesying something that would be a benefit of those to come. But this secret, this thing that's now been revealed to you is so special that even the angels longed to look into these things. That's what you now have in your possession, this understanding and knowledge of what God has done through the Lord Jesus that for centuries they were desperate to know. He, just, he wants to magnify this in so many ways. Because this, this is why we have to read the Scriptures carefully and well, because I know how easy it is just to read through this, this list of things that God is doing. And, it, and like I said, it just sort of washes past us. But if we don't go slow and really stop and think about each of these things, then we miss the glorious depth and specialness of this thing that the angels longed to know. That's what we now have in our pockets, on our phones, in our Bibles, in our laps, on the bookshelf. So the big thing okay, that, that Peter wants us to know in this first opening sentence here is that believers in Jesus are chosen exiles that have an imperishable inheritance of salvation. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Chosen exiles. Yes, you are foreigners, possibly politically, but certainly spiritually. Yes, that is what you are. And yet at the same time, you have this imperishable inheritance of salvation. He wants them to see themselves in this world, not in terms of the suffering that they were enduring at the hands of the Roman government, and in accordance with Roman culture, he wants them to see themselves in terms of all of this. This is where you are really at. And guys, this is what we need to do for ourselves. Because this, this is not our natural way of looking at the world, right? This is not the picture that we are given of ourselves as we live as people of faith in this world. There's all sorts of different pictures about how Christians are perceived, pressures put on us if we live out our faith, ways for us to talk about ourselves or, or, or mockery made, 
of the things that are held most closely to us. And if we let those voices outside of Scripture and outside of the Lord Jesus define us, then we will lose the joy that we are meant to have in the midst of all this. If we don't see ourselves first and foremost as being with Jesus in this sense, then as we live out our life in this world around us, and again, this is not even if we're under overt pressure and oppression and all that sort of stuff. This is just the cultural water that we swim in, right? I mean, how many things, like, I don't know which particular one you feel like. Maybe it's that Christians are unthinking and just, you know, weak intellectually and all that sort of stuff. Maybe it's that you're old-fashioned and just out of date and it's irrelevant. Maybe that it's you're judgmental and mean and cruel. Maybe it's that you support an institution that seems to be completely hollow and has committed, you know, worse crimes and all this sort of stuff than anyone else. Maybe you, you, it's, it's that you feel the sense of being backwards or out of step and all that sort of thing. Whatever the case may be, right? It's real easy to let all those things start to define and shape how we think about ourselves in the world, which shapes how we live. I'm reluctant to talk about Jesus at work because I'm afraid that I'm going to be perceived in these ways. I'm scared to be identified as a Christian because of what it might mean for my status at work, school, with friends, whatever. I don't want to live out my faith publicly because if I do, I'm going to bring all this other stuff. And that's the way that we will act if we perceive ourselves in accordance with what the world says about faith and Christians. And so this thing, if we are going to live as people of faith in a culture that at the very least is not for Christianity... And we know that in all sorts of scripture, there's all sorts of verses that say, you know, that those who are not friends with God are his enemies, whether they believe they're actively working against him or not. If we're going to live as people of faith in a world that's not for Christ, then we need to be really determined ourselves to again and again see ourselves the way that Jesus sees us. To not let the world define where we stand with Jesus or where we stand with the world around us, but to listen to Jesus' words and that let that be the prism through which we see the world. As I go into work today, I do so not fearful and timid and embarrassed about my faith. I go into work today as someone who in God's great mercy lives in a living hope, shielded by faith according to God's power, with an with an inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade, kept for me in heaven... That is where I stand with Jesus today. That is where I stand with the King of Kings. And I'm going to seek to love this world around me from that place of security and stability in Christ and be damned what the world says about me. I will listen to my Lord and Savior. That we need to build up that internal pressure inside of us, that rock-solid sense of who I am in Christ and where I stand with Him, so that when we face suffering and trials and persecution and oppression, that I will stand firm in my faith, knowing that there is going to be a time when the fullness of salvation comes 
And I want to let all these various trials that I'm experiencing now be for God's glory because they simply showed the genuineness of my faith. Because my faith and trust in him was proven true and that gives him glory because he is the one who I love above all others. It's in him that I rejoice. And so the take-home, the, the, the transforming work that we're asking for the Spirit to make in us this morning is that we would rejoice in this imperishable salvation that we have. Now again, that's going to look like different things for different people in different places, with different personalities and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes rejoicing is just that deep sense of quiet thankfulness before God. Sometimes it is singing songs of praise and being open and boisterous. Whatever it might look like for you, that's cool. But we want to make sure that the way that we live in this world fits with this picture that we've been given here by Peter about where we stand with Jesus. Not worried, not anxious, because we're shielded by faith not feeling like it's all too much of us for us because I have an inheritance in heaven that God's keeping safe me by his power. That it all seems hopeless, but no, I live in a living hope. This is the framework mindset, heart set, if you will, that we need to have. And like I said, Peter's going to get real practical in talking about how we live in unjust circumstances but that's not going to fly with us unless we get this stuff deep inside of us. This is the stuff that we really need to grasp. Okay? And to help us do that, we're, we're, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. We're going to sing Save My Soul again. Okay? Because it's a declaratory so song. I want to give you guys the chance now to respond in song to the gospel that you've just heard to give yourself that mindset. Because this is one way that we can do it to remind ourselves again and again and again about what Jesus has done for us so that we are in the right place to go forth this week and live for Christ in all that we do. It's weighty, but it's good. It's a challenge, but it's real. It's hard, but that's the point. Because it's through the fire that our faith shows true. So let me pray and then let's sing together now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you, Father, for this incredible inheritance that we've been given that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Thank you, Father, that we now live in God's mercy in a living hope that we have a new birth, a new spirit inside of us, given to us in your mercy. The Lord, that we have all of this through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That we're shielded by our faith in him. That while various trials come, we know that you're going to use them to test and prove our faith is authentic so that you may be glorified as you should. We never forget the specialness of knowing these things, things which even angels have longed to know, which have now been revealed to us. And we pray, Father, that as we sing these words now, that your spirit would work in us. And Lord, if there are, if there are scales that need to fall from our eyes right now, if there are false ways of thinking about ourselves or our place in this world or our place with Jesus, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to remove those scales now 
that we might see where we stand with you clearly and rejoice all the more in all that we have in Christ. We thank you for it in his mighty name. Amen. I invite you to stand. Let's respond to this truth with joy deep in our hearts and in our songs.